Open your Bibles. Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. I've got to figure out how to get this cap thing back on here before we go too far. You know, it's going to be a good Sunday. There's so many things going wrong. You know, I don't know if you, do you ever do this? Do you ever think like this? There's all kinds of stuff going wrong. It just seems like there's no end to like what is being pulled off by the enemy and what all things are doing. And I think there must be something really great waiting to happen. Far too many times we are so unaware of the things that are happening in the spiritual realm or at least of how, much thing, how many things are happening and what all is coming. And, and the reality of it is, uh, obviously, our Father in Heaven knows those things without, with, no, with no question. But I believe also the enemy of our souls uh, has much uh, more finely tuned uh, awareness of the spiritual realm than we do, of course. That's where he operates. And so I think when he is aware of those things, uh, he, he, of, of what the Lord wants to do, that he increases his intensity or his activity. I, I just would invite you, uh, I mean, we should be like this all the time, but I would invite you to make a sincere effort at uh, just uh, praying against that, even while I'm preaching, even while I mean, we're going through a baptism uh, you know, we don't ever really talk about these things because it's all, it's all about the joy of the occasion, which is true. But uh, you should understand that when people come up in front and make a public confession of faith, of their faith to Jesus Christ, that the enemy takes that as a, as a sign of uh, wanting to, to engage even deeper into battle and, and wanting to throw them off course as soon as possible. And so uh, pray for Carrie and Gordy this next week. It's going to be, uh, they're going to, they're going to probably face some things. I don't know for sure. It's not always like that, but they're going to face some things that, uh, uh, maybe are meant to bring discouragement to their lives. and Pray even today as we're doing this. You should always be doing that, by the way. I don't always say that, but uh, um, you've seen my fallibility, and you know that even when I'm up here speaking, it, I, I always am in need of people who are wrestling <laughs> for me or with me. Open your Bibles, as I said, to First Thessalonians chapter 5. I don't have any handout for you today, but uh, I want to read just two verses for the basis of my message from First Thessalonians 5, verses 9 and 10. Uh, I titled my message, Awake or Asleep, which I think will be obvious once we read the text here why I, I did that. Um, actually, I'm just going to throw up, it's the very, I, I put the whole thing up on the, on the slide, so I'll just throw it up there for us. Uh, look at First Thessalonians verse 5, 9, and 10, and as it's customary for me, um, I tend to kind of uh, craft or speak sort of directly to Carrie and to Gordy. I'm going to have to split my time a bit because Gordy's back there and Carrie's up here. But um, that's really a good thing because the reality is the message is for every one of us. Uh, I tend to focus in sometimes on some things I'm saying, but it's really for every one of you to, uh, to, to internalize. And one thing I love, one of the reasons that this is one of my favorite days or services is because not only do we have people making a public confession of faith, which is a great thing to see, but it's an opportunity for every one of us to assess where we are at with the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you, I'm assuming this, I know this to be true for many of you, but I'm assuming for most of us, many of you have been walking with the Lord for, for some years. I'm sure because I know that's how it works. There's been ups and downs. There's been, you know, times where you feel really close. There's times where you've walked away from him. There's all kinds of stuff going on. But today's an opportunity for you to say, where am I at? As we work through a message that I get to share with uh, Carrie and with Gordy, uh, it, do these, does this speak to me? Does, does it, uh, does it, can I agree with what these verses are saying? Am I, am I finding myself in that place of peace? Lynn referred to a place of peace. Here's the verses. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. 
One sentence, two verses. For God has not destined, he has not appointed, he has not laid out for us, he has not designed us, if you want to put it that way. He is not, that's not what he has in mind for us, that's not what he wants for us. He has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, Jesus died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. It's the last phrase that I, 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 I titled my sermon on, whether we are awake or asleep. Whether you are awake, Carrie, or asleep, whether you are awake, Gordy, or asleep, it's this phrase, and for all of us, that I've, I've titled a message on, but I want to spend time with the first part first before we get to the second part. This is a theme. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a theme that Paul began with at the very beginning of this letter already. This is actually, we're reading, if you are obviously taking a look at your Bible there, it's the end of the letter or towards the end, but from the very beginning of the letter, he began to pick up this very theme already. In chapter one, he, gets rid- he goes through his greetings. He says, I'm Paul. I'm sending greetings from these people, myself and these people, and he gives a- thanks uh, for the Thessalonians' uh, example of faith to people around them. And he says this in verse eight. I'm going to read a few verses here. In verse eight of chapter one, he says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, which is the surrounding areas there, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves, the other areas around, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. In other words, it became known how the Thessalonians responded when Paul came among them. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, I love this line uh, that I read here a little bit earlier, verse 9, because to me, it's the, it's, the, it's, a, it's the epitome, it's a short version of why we're here today. He says, Paul says, when I came to Thessalonica with the gospel and it's become known everywhere that this happened, that I walked in and you received what I said and not only did you receive it and you listened to me, but you gladly uh, took on Jesus and you gladly, here's what he says, you turned to God from idols so that you may serve the living and true God. Is that not why we're here? Is that not why I have a tub full of water behind me today? It's for people that have decided to say that I want to turn from idols, that's every other thing we think that might be important or lift up high or give ourselves to or yield ourselves to. I'm turning away from that. I'm turning to God and I'm going to serve the living and the true God. What what an, what an incredible phrase. You know, I, I say this all the time, and you maybe get tired of me saying this, but I, I think we, we, we are so, we're so used to just having, like, worn-out phrases, or we're just reading English language, and just the, the words just kind of sit in there, and, and we move on, and we forget to think about what we're saying. Think of this. The living and true God. Again, just a short phrase, but in that phrase, we could, if we would be willing to do so, the the fault isn't on God's side or anything else, it's on our side, but if we were willing to do so, we could spend weeks and weeks and months and probably years of our life just dwelling and digging into this thought that this is the living God and the true God. Both of those words signify things, right? If he's living, that means he's not what? Dead. Significant parts of Scripture. Isaiah spends time with this. Paul spends time with this in the New Testament. Significant parts of Scripture are given to the fact that so much of what we give our attention and our, our desires to and our motivations to and the things we lay ourselves down to and we pursue and we want to do and that we're passionate about are dead things. 
But this is the living God. And of course, if he is the true God, that means he's not the what? The false God. Again, this is, a, this is an incredible phrase. Can we tuck this phrase in our pockets and carry it with us and let it roll around our heads and say, I get to serve the living and the true God. Not the false ones, not the dead ones, not the ones that don't have any power, not the ones that, that are in the end going to let me down, not the ones that are after other things, but the living and the true God. But what I really want to pay attention to is the verse he says after that. Because he says that I saw when I came to you and you turned to God from idols, you wanted to serve the living and true God, and you wanted to wait for his son from heaven. Again, this is informing our theology even as we go through. Where's Jesus at? He's in heaven. He's waiting till the day he gets sent back. But the, these people, we today, waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who does what? What does that last phrase say? Who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is now the second time in as many references as I've given us where this word wrath shows up. We don't often like to talk about the wrath of God. In fact, there's people who like to make uh, entire cases built upon the fact that God's wrath it doesn't exist anymore or that he doesn't, it's, it's, Whatever, he's not interested anymore. He's changed. He's different. Or he's, well, I don't, know what, I don't know what the arguments are. They're not my arguments. The second time in as many references in a New Testament letter that talks about the fact that God has wrath. And this wrath is something that's going to This wrath means something. It's going it, it, to come. And, it, and, and why is it going to come? And what's it going to do? And what is that going to mean? And why would we respond? You know, the, I focus on the fact that Jesus is delivering us from the wrath to come. But I think we have to recognize that that's only good news if we understand that the wrath is going to come? Or who is going to receive that wrath? Who's supposed to receive it? Well, Paul opens up his letter to the Romans with this. Well, he doesn't open it up quite up, but uh, verse 18, chapter 1. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful. Again, probably would be good for us to, uh, we're not going to take time this morning, but good for you, all of us, to spend some time thinking through that verse a little bit and saying, what is this trying to say? What is this, the, the ungodliness, anything that is not like God? God's wrath is being revealed and will be revealed against all the ungodliness, anything that's not like him and unrighteous, anything that's not right by him, that's not following him, that's not, that's not obeying him, all of that will be revealed and it goes on to say that through that unrighteousness, we, as humans, we suppress the truth. The truth, of course, is that God is the true and living God, that his way is right and perfect and pure. There is no other way. And that anyone who disobeys that is deceived. Again, we won't take time, but if you want to spend more time with this subject, you can read the book of Revelation. A major portion of the book of Revelation is actually, in fact, the, the, the fulfilling of this verse, the outcome of this verse, the revelation, that's why it's called revelation, right? The revelation, the revealing that God gave to John that this is the wrath that is going to come. This is what it's going to look like when God pours out his wrath. Now, just a quick sampling to make sure that we're not falling asleep and leaving, getting left behind or we're tracking along. Like, what, is that, what, what does that look, give me a sense of what that looks like in the book of Revelation when God begins to pour out his wrath. What does that look like? What does that mean? What are some things you think about when you say, oh, God in Revelation is pouring out his wrath? 
What's that? Fire. All right, fire, brimstone. Antifa. Antifa. Devastation. <laughs> Devastation, who said that? Somebody back there. Devastation. I mean, that's a really good word, Gordy. Because when you read through those, those chapters in Revelation, doesn't matter what it is, right? He uses different methods. He uses different things. He says, this happens, this happens, this plague, this fire, this. But the end result is always devastation. Do you know there's a verse there where it says that even though they continue to curse God, they wish they could die. That's how horrible it is. They wish they could die. They cry out to the rocks and say, fall on us and kill us and get us out of our misery because this is more than I can take. Now, I say all that, and we need to know all that. We need to accept all that. We need to realize all that, that that wrath is for anyone who has not followed God in everything he has said. Which is who? who which, which of us have not followed God in all, in all that he has said, have, have erred in some way against what God has said? This is an easy answer, guys. Every one of us. The wrath we're talking about that's being stored up, that's going to be revealed, that we read about, is intended for anyone who has disobeyed God, which, as it turns out, is every single living human being. But thankfully, we have this verse here in Thessalonians, right? Because we read, this is why it's called the good news. We read the fact that God sent Jesus. I read this verse to you. He raised him from the dead to deliver us from the wrath to come to deliver us from the wrath to come. How does this work? Well, Paul has these couple of really key verses in the book of Colossians, chapter two. I could read, I mean, I, I love the book. I could read the entire book of Colossians for you this morning to make this point, but I'll just read a couple of verses. And you, he says in chapter two, verse 13, and you, us, every one of us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Remember, every one of us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, when he brought Jesus out of the grave, made him alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's a key phrase that's repeated over and over again in that section of Colossians. It is that phrase right there, in him. Everything I've told you so far the, uh, uh, from the word of God, there's a wrath stored up for everyone who has disobeyed God, which happens to be every one of us. There's only one choice or solution we have to have be delivered from that wrath. I just read it to you here, that God has done what none of us could have done by canceling that record of debt, by nailing it to the cross. And then when he brought Jesus out of the grave, he made us alive with him, which is actually the same word, anautos, with Jesus. It kept referring back to Jesus. And that phrase tells us how it happens. When we are in Jesus, when we are in Christ, when we are in him, all of this then becomes true. This is why, let me come back to the verse that I began with. This is why Paul tells all of us, he tells you this morning, Carrie, he tells you this morning, Gordy, this is why he tells us that God has not destined us, has not destined you, has not meant us, has not designed us to experience that wrath, but instead to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has meant that for us. Peter wrote those words, right? He says, God doesn't want that any one of us should should perish. He doesn't want any one of us to, to, to fall away or, or to be lost eternally. It's going to happen, but he doesn't want that for any of us. He wants all of us to come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, let's turn our attention a bit then, having made that point. He has this interesting phrase there at the end. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Awake or asleep. Why does he use this phrase, whether we are awake or asleep? Well, if you back up just a few verses in there, let me give you, we're going to kind of take this phrase and look at it from about, I don't know, three or four different angles, kind of come from different perspectives and help us see what all Paul can mean when he says this phrase, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Jesus. We might be alive with him. If you back up just a few verses uh, into verse 6 in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, so then, let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. Now, remember, he began his letter by saying, I have seen and heard the testimony that you received Jesus and you did so gladly. You're now serving the living and the true God and you are waiting on Jesus to return because you know that he's the one who's delivered you from the wrath that's going to come. And now he says, let's not be asleep as others do, but let us keep awake. And he's saying this in the context of talking about Jesus returning back. He says, Jesus is going to come back. Now, you could read these words literally, right? And say, well, he's saying that we should not sleep, we should stay awake, we should, but I don't think it's probably what he's probably trying to say, right? Because I don't think that Paul is emphasizing that they should not ever go to sleep again so that they're ready for Jesus to return, right? Am I right with that? Most of you slept last night, right? So you don't want to be found disobedient to scripture in this. That's not what he's saying, right? We know that. What is he saying? He's using this phrase awake or asleep in a different context, not literally, but figuratively. In fact, if you read the next verse, it gives us a clue, because he says, for those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night, and he's making, he, he jumps, he jumps us over in the next reel to, real, to get us to realize he's talking figuratively. He said, hey, Jesus is going to come back, he's going to deliver you from that wrath, but if you want to be ready for that, you have to be awake when he comes, not asleep. Meaning, you have to be ready for him. You have to be aware that he's coming, you have to be be right with the Lord. You have to be in him at that moment. Not asleep, but awake. Does that make sense? I think it's very fair for us to say, if you want to be ready when Jesus comes, this sounds redundant, but then you have to be ready. Right? If you want to be ready when Jesus comes back, then you have to be ready. End of the sentence, like period. Now, you have to be ready. Otherwise, that's why he says, we're not like those. We don't, we don't fall asleep. We're awake. We're aware of what's happening around us. We know that, that the, the things that are going on only point to what Scripture says, hey, the day is coming. Jesus' return is very close. It's coming. And I can step out of the page of Scripture and stand before you today and say that very confidently. Hey, wake up. The time is coming. Jesus' return is very close. If we want to be ready for that, we should not be asleep. We should not be given to things like drunkenness. There's a couple other lists in other places, but it, it jumps rails to help us to see that it's the things that go against the teaching of God's word. We should not be under any control of anything or anyone except for the Holy Spirit. But if you keep going back a little further, there's another sense at which we can take Paul's statement, so whether we are awake or asleep, we will live with him. For if you go back to chapter 4, let me read a couple of verses in chapter 4. When he first begins to talk about the day of the Lord and the coming of Jesus Christ coming back, this is what he says. I'm going to start in verse 14. 
Verse 14, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now in this context, when Paul says awake or asleep in those, in those phrases, he's obviously not talking literally awake or asleep, like I went to bed last night and woke up again this morning. He's also not talking figuratively like, hey, hey pay attention to your life and keep yourself right with God and, and don't fall asleep. Don't, don't get sucked into things that, that draw you away. He's, he's not talking that anymore either because now he's talking about those that are asleep are those that are what? Have died, right? Those that have gone on. Those that are buried already. And he's saying, listen, don't feel like if I'm not alive when Jesus comes back, it's too late. I've missed it. Like if I happen to have died first and I'm buried, too late. He says, listen, no, 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 it's not like that at all. We declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are left alive are not going to precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died already. In other words, well, this is the point of God's sovereignty. You already know this. But in other words, it won't matter if you're alive when Jesus returns or you've already died because he's going to come return for you either way. In fact, he says the dead in Christ, those that are buried, are going to rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up with him in the air. Whether you are awake or asleep, whether you are alive or dead, when you are in Christ, you will live with Jesus and not be subjected to the wrath of God. This is why. This is why you get in here today. This is why you make a public This is why you make your life right and you say, I want to be ready when Jesus comes. Because that's what I believe the word tells me. There's one more sense I want to get us to in this phrase that we can take with Paul that I think is equally valid, by the way, supported by the rest of Scripture. And it, it plays on the same theme of the words awake or sleep, meaning living or dying. But it's not quite the same because it's not really a question of whether I'm still alive when Jesus comes or whether I've actually died already when Jesus comes. But it's, it's from the perspective that if I say, I believe God has not destined me for wrath. I was not created by God to suffer his wrath for eternity. I was created to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. And if I believe that, and if I'm found in him, it does not matter. I, I took liberty to just put a couple of, uh, to change the words slightly. You'll see, I put them in brackets there. It does not matter whether I live or die, like now, whether I live or die, I'm going to live with him. I tell you this is a valid way to look at what Paul wrote because Paul wrote this in a much clearer sense when he wrote the Philippians. Remember, he's having this discussion with the Philippians. He writes them a letter. He says, now I'm in imprisonment. You guys think it's a bad thing, but it's really turning out to be a good thing because the guards hearing about Jesus and all the way up into the very palace itself hearing about Jesus. And I know there's some people talking about, you know, out of jealousy, they want to discredit me. But you know what? If they're preaching Jesus, it doesn't matter. The kingdom's being advanced. And then he says, you know what? I don't know whether I'm going to make it out of this. I may die here. And then he says, in some way, I'd actually wish I rather would. And he has this phrase, it's very familiar to us, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. This is the attitude I just was pointing to with this verse. Paul is saying, 
in the end, it does not matter whether I live or whether I die. It doesn't matter whether they hurt me or don't hurt me. It doesn't matter whether I make it through unscathed or whether I get whipped or beaten or shipwrecked or all kinds of other things he goes on and talks about that has happened to him, that have happened to him, did happen to him. He says it doesn't matter because when I know that I'm in Christ and I have not been destined for the wrath of God to come, that we delivered from that when he comes, then I know it doesn't matter if my body happens to die or if I live or if I suffer or if I don't suffer. I will on that day live with him and I will in this day live in him by his Holy Spirit. This is why, let me read you some words from Jesus because those words can only make sense with this kind of attitude. I don't think they make any kind of sense without this kind of attitude. So I tell you, Jesus was telling us to have the same thoughts. Matthew chapter 10. The, set, the heading of this section for me says, have no fear. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. Let me, I'm going to read a bunch of them. So if you want to turn there, you're definitely welcome to do that. In fact, I'll take a drink to give you a chance to turn there. I should have given you the reference first. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. I don't like doing this, but we're going to jump right in the middle of Jesus' um, words here. But he says this. He says, so have no fear of them, of those outside, of those who are trying to persecute you. If you look at the sections before that, he's talking about that people will come and they will persecute you. They'll hurt you. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who, cannot, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This, by the way, this ties back directly to the verse I just shared. Do not fear those who kill the body. Gordy, Carrie, every one of us, these are words from Jesus. Do not fear those who can kill your body, and that's all they can do. But instead, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That sounds to me like saying, if I'm in Jesus Christ and I know that when he returns, I will be with him forever, then I don't care if I live or die here, because I know I will live with him. He goes on in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, here's the crux of the issue. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. But let's keep reading. He goes on and says something surprising. For he is the prince of peace. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I will tell you, church, Friends here today, in our setting, in our communities, in our tight-knit Mennonite uh, family is about everything, these verses are hard for us. But the point he is making, Carrie and Gordy and the rest of us, is that we have to choose him, have to choose Jesus over everything and everybody else. And that is how we are found in him so that when the day comes, we know we will live with him whether we live or die. 
Whoever finds his life, whoever seeks to protect his life, whoever thinks that his, his own life and keeping his own life or her own life free from difficulty and harm and stress and pain, whoever seeks that will lose their life. But whoever loses their life for his sake will gain it. Let me transition now. Follow that theme up. That thought of dying. Losing your life. And point us to some words that Paul wrote that bring us to the subject of today. Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 6. Again, you can turn there if you'd like. Romans chapter 6, verses 3. Do you not know? Listen, church. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not uh, sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I'm going to stop there. All this revolves around the same subject we've been talking about. If we want to be living with Christ when he returns then it's very clear that we have to die to ourselves. And he reminds us here, I'll put the verse up here, we have been buried with Jesus by baptism into his death. Now let me talk about that just for a little bit. Let me just make something clear. I believe with everything I have that anyone who has made any kind of decision in their heart to follow Jesus should have a moment like today where they come before fellow believers and say, this is what I want to testify to. And I believe there's symbolism. Gordy, you and I have talked about this. This is why you're here again today. There's symbolism in going under the water and saying, I, when I'm doing this, I'm saying I'm buried with Jesus. I'm dying to myself. I'm losing my life for his sake because I know that if I am buried with him, I will be brought back to life with him as well. So that whether I live or die, physically live or die, I will live with Jesus. But let me make something else very clear. This doesn't make you right with God. It is your heart that is dying to your own will that says, for Jesus' sake, I say no to myself. Look at all the rest of what he talked about here. He says, if you've died, you're set free from sin. You no longer present your body to sin. You present your body to God for instruments for his righteousness. You no longer give your members, you no longer think about that. You, you no longer do things that are unrighteous or against God. 
because you've died to that. That comes from in here. This is a testimony to what has already happened here. This, without this, won't mean a whole lot. They should never be separated. When you have one, you should get the other. That's what the Bible clearly lays out, that when it happens in here, that you will want to come in front of people and say, this is who I'm following. This is my testimony that I'm buried with Christ so I can be raised with him as well. But these verses are talking about what's happening in here. This brings us, when we have been buried with Christ, when we have, through baptism, said, I have died to myself, and I'm telling everyone else around me that that's true, so I can live, be alive to Christ. Then that brings us back to where we understand why Paul wrote these words. Visit our verse one more time. I can with great confidence, brothers and sisters, tell you today that God has not intended for you, has not destined you for his wrath. He created you in his image for uh, his glory through a relationship with him. However, I can also tell you that because of our sinfulness, we uh, are responsible or will pay for his wrath unless we are in Christ. He has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful that he's done that.